This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Better Reading acknowledges the traditional custodians on whose land our office stands, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation and their elders past, present and emerging. I'm Cheryl Arkell from Better Reading. The idea for this podcast came to me from trying to find books to read to my great-nephews. As regular listeners know, I'm from a Lebanese background, and to my surprise, it was difficult finding books where I felt that they could see themselves in the story. It got me thinking about how many Australians must feel like this. Why is there still a lack of diversity in children's books? Why? Late in 2019, Better Reading was awarded a grant from the Copyright Agency to produce a six-part series on diversity in children's writing. At the time, we could not have predicted what 2020 would bring. I now understand more than ever how little I know and how important these conversations are. This series by no means contains all the answers, but I hope it opens up more conversations. I personally have learned a great deal talking to these guests. At times, it was uncomfortable. At times, I wasn't quite sure what I meant or was saying. Afterwards, I've taken the time to reflect on many of the issues my guests discussed. I look forward to learning more. I hope you enjoy our conversation on diversity in children's writing. Laura Bloom, welcome to Better Reading. Hi, I'm so happy to be here. Thank you. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Laura is the author of a number of novels for children and adults, including Augustine's Lunch, which was shortlisted for the New South Wales Premier's Award and shortlisted for the Young Australian Readers Awards, and In the Mood, which was shortlisted for the ABC Fiction Awards and was a bestseller in France and the Dream Writers series. I mean, why particularly in France was it a bestseller? (laughs) Because that's the only place where it was. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, I love that. I love how people globally read differently. Isn't that funny? Yeah, and they had to translate it and it did super well in book groups. And I kind of think, am I actually French or is there some French connection? Yeah, stories. I barely pass on, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Laura's son, Leo, is nonverbal and has autism. She wrote her book, Mika and Max, because, and I quote you, Laura, Mm. I wanted to write a story in which one of the main characters has a disability and to give that character as much agency, personality and individuality as anyone else in the story because that's what I found to be the best case with my son. I Mm. love that quote. Thank you. So firstly, tell me a bit about yourself and then tell me a bit about Leo. So I've always known I'm a writer from the youngest age. I think I was a reader first and I remember my dad would read to me at night. Very early on, just knew that about myself. I remember before I could even read, I used to pretend to be able to read because I hoped that people would look at me and think, she's a reader. (laughs) I love that. And many writers tell me that, that they, that really their love of writing came from their love of reading. Holly Ringland once told me that when she was 12, she wrote to a publisher and told them to look out for her book that was coming in a few years. Wow. (laughs) Don't you love that? I love that. And I envy that confidence. Yeah, yeah. Because I always knew I was a writer, but to actually come out and write under my own voice, I wrote some genre fiction books under a pseudonym. It must be different personalities. It just feels so personal to me to write. 
But to bring it out into the world and own it, it's huge. It took me until I was, so Augustine's lunch came out when I was 30. And so much of the process before then wasn't writing. I could, you know, I feel like I've kind of always had it in me to write. It was the courage to study writing. I did very briefly at UTS. I found it wasn't for me. I actually switched over to writing for screen and I found it really useful studying writing for film to learn about structure. I think the way I write, it's so personal and I feel so sort of connected to something so far deep inside. Like when I read, I feel like it's just me and the author. It feels so intimate. Mm. It's a real process to think, okay, it's going to be this intimate thing that then goes out there into the world. The big thing I realised after I published, of course, was once you've done that, it connects with readers and that's actually completing the circle and that's actually the most rewarding, most incredible thing to form that connection with another person. So that kind of healed me. Like when I finally got the courage to do it and discovered that readers would be connecting with me and my work in that way, it all made sense. But for Holly to have done that is just incredible to me because at that age I would have been saying, oh no, oh no, I can't have my book out there as me. Like it's too private. It's too vulnerable. I want to touch on that because it is true. I'm listening to a lot of audio books mm. now and I'm listening to a lot of podcasts and I often think that there's an intimacy in those. But you're right, there is definitely an intimacy with the reader, isn't there? You must have it from when you're writing. I think growing up, I never really felt at home in the world. I always felt it was exhausting. I was sort of having to work hard at fitting in or at feeling comfy or for whatever reason. So books were this refuge for me. Like they were kind of where I went to feel at home and stories. So that's what writing feels like. It's such an intimate, it's like a sanctuary, mm. you know, a book or a story and a character. So tell me then, tell me about Leo. So I always knew I was going to be a writer. I didn't know that I was going to be a mother. It seems like some people just always knew that, whereas for me it was definitely a, a choice. I was an older mother, so I was 35. I really knew that I wanted to have a baby and I, it was very intentional is what I'm saying. And that's been really important because then it turned out that I had a baby with a disability. And there were just so many times when this leads into a lot of other questions, you know, about people testing and doing all of that. I feel so lucky that Leo was a really, really wanted baby and and he's our only baby. So he's just the most, he's just been the light of our lives. We had no idea because I'd never known any other babies. I didn't in any way relate to him as different. He's the only baby I knew for a long time. Now I've known loads of babies and I have an amazing godson. But I think that was a real privilege. I mean, it was very challenging in some ways, but also a real privilege that to me, he is normal. You know, to me, he is, we connected for a long time in this very kind of innocent bubble as he's mine and I'm his and there are no labels on that. And yeah. that, I think that's an enormous privilege. So at what point did you know that Leo had autism? So he was diagnosed at 11 months, which is very young. Wow. But we didn't feel like there was anything wrong. I didn't feel that that meant anything until he was about two and a half or three when I really began to realise that there are a whole lot of services where Leo didn't belong or a whole lot of places where we couldn't go or a whole lot of things that we were going to have to fight to get. I think our experience of disability is very much the social experience of disability. So say going to preschool, he needed support to go and that meant that he needed a a one-on-one support worker. So we had to find the money to pay for that. Otherwise, he wouldn't have been able to go to kindy and kindy is really important, you know, particularly important for a a kid like Leo who, who needs all those extra cues, you know, and all that extra. I mean, he just, he needs more support 
all, all the way along. And we've had to provide that because until there was the NDIS, there was no support. He got one-on-one support once he went to primary school. So he got that in kindy when he was six. But before that, there was just nothing. His, his and my bond felt so, it's kind of been the rock of my life. I guess it's 24-7. More so, I mean, I know ch- children are 24-7 as well, but it's more 24-7, isn't it? It's 24-7. And it's also coming to terms with the fact that I would have to advocate for him and fight for him and that we were fundamentally different. And I've actually, it's interesting because, you know, I said I felt different when I was growing up. Even though I think I absolutely passed inside, I felt like I I didn't feel at home. So it's very interesting having a child who is different. It's almost as though I was preparing for that all my life. It's not hard for me to stand with him or for us to stand together. And it feels like who we are. Like I often say disability is kind of like punk. You know, we are. (laughs) But the actual fighting for him to get what he deserves and to be included, there was a lot of pain and a lot of injustice and a lot of, um, I often say it was like a magnet. Leo's disability was like a magnet. We brought amazing people closer to us, but a whole lot of other people were repelled away. I mean, I was really feeling the other side of privilege for us to not be, you know, in the in-group and how it feels painful, but also what you miss out on and what your child is not getting or what, what's not happening. I know that it's like that times 100 or a million for other marginalised groups, but people with disability are among the most marginalised community in Australia. That was a huge journey. But Leo himself is just the best person. It's hard to describe how wonderful it is to be with him. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So talk to me then how the writing started because when you were writing fiction, I guess, before mm. you had children, you weren't thinking about diversity in terms of What's your writing. What's funny? Or were well, you? I actually was. It's really interesting. I, mean, I feel like maybe I've been on this path for a very long time because for me the big choice was writing or I worked in the youth sector And particularly in youth participation, which is a form of looking at all kinds of things like drugs and alcohol or sexual health. They were my particular areas. And I worked with Torres Strait and Aboriginal Islander young people and all kinds of young people from all over the state on basically alternatives to policing and alternatives to, I worked in juvenile justice in different kinds of law reform around. Isn't that timely? We should all Isn't it amazing? I worked as a youth worker and on lots of these issues. So it's kind of interesting how consistently these things have come up. So then I was writing. And so my adult fiction is a lot about women in stories where they've been excluded, kind of putting them back into the frame and putting them back in to that story. So for example, in Choosing Zoe, my first book, there was a termination in that story. You know, it was very much about choosing to have a child. And, and that's just so important to me because Leo is such a wanted chosen child. You know, there, there's a very painful way of talking about disability where oh, if you could have avoided that, you would. I always really want to emphasise Leo's gifts. We need them. No, I remember talking to someone about termination and she was talking about her grown-up son, Richard. He's grown up and he's, you know, married and living with his girlfriend and she goes and stays with him. And she was saying to me, maybe the first time you might have agreed to termination if you found out, but if you've had a child, you'd never agree to that. That's interesting though, Cheryl, because... I worked in sexual health. And a lot of people who have terminations, half the terminations are for women who have two kids or more. Yeah, wow. I I think a big part of termination around that is also, I think it's also realising how much a child needs. So there are women who are having terminations who've already got two kids because they just know they won't be able to. Wow. I think I'm I'm trying to say they're they're two very different things. There's who Leo is, which we have always, has always been amazing. But then there's the social context around disability in, in Australia, that's been really bad yeah. and it's finally getting better. 
So neurodiversity and disability aren't necessarily the same thing. However, mm. your son falls into both categories. Is that mm. right? Can you talk yeah. to me about that? So I'm speaking from my point of view as a mother and a writer. I think our neurodiversity, we're just right at the beginning of finding out how neurodiverse we all are. So Leo has autism, which can be on such a huge continuum. People with autism, you wouldn't know from looking at them or talking to them that they had autism. You know Hannah Gadsby? She was diagnosed with autism a few years ago. She was in her 40s before she was diagnosed. Whereas Leo, you know, he was diagnosed at 10 months. So it's on such a continuum. Neurodiversity can be so sort of hard to spot. Mm. And then there's also disability, which is how much it actually impacts. What support you need to be included and participate. Mm -hmm. So I see them as connected but different because you could be neurodiverse and not need support, even though I do think you need understanding and acknowledgement. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Talk to me about how you felt that Leo was left out of the conversation. And I guess that starts from you reading to him. And at what point, as a reader yourself, you mm. would have been aware of that very quickly, that there wasn't much there. Was that right? Yeah. And I was looking for books for Leo's school. Yeah. And I became aware of how hard it was to find books that spoke about disability in a way that felt at all kind of real to me and not just tokenistic or patronising or... um making it even more of an issue than it already was. And also how there just weren't people, there weren't families with disability in books. Where were all the people, not just like Leo, but like me, or all the families I know? Because actually, you know, once your eyes open to something, you just see it everywhere. Disability has been there the whole time. But of course, I I was blind to it. You know, I I was the problem before. You know, I had my eyes open to some issues as I was working as a youth worker, but disability, absolutely not on my radar. And that's not an accident. You know, I was, people with disability were excluded so that I didn't see them and I didn't go looking. Why didn't I go looking? You know, I, I, I regret that. And I think that I'm the poorer for it, but also what about the families? If you're messaging other writers, mm. if they're listening at the moment and they're writing children's books and they might not have had the experience and they might not have a lovely little Leo, what is it that you'd like to see more in their writing? I mean, I was very conscious during this podcast that there are amazing people who are nonverbal who are writing right now. There's the Brotherhood of the Voiceless in Brisbane who are, who are writers. So Leo is going to have a voice. And there's a big difference between me writing as a person next to a person with a disability compared to that, that person's story. 
So I feel I'm a writer reflecting my world and my world is diverse. That's the reality of it. That's the truth of it and always has been. And so I want to be as honest and real as possible in the way that I write. And that is to have these experiences in there. It'd actually be dishonest not to have characters who are queer or from a you know multiracial or because that's the truth of my life. That, that's the truth of my community. You know, I have to start from where I am. So I think I'm a part of that picture, but a crucial part of that picture is people speaking in their own voices from their own experience. Obviously, my bookmaker and Max, I think it's a really important contribution to this picture, but we have to have stories from people with disability, you know, with that experience, telling not just their stories, but stories from their point of view, like about anything, but from their point of view to make it truly a rich, real picture. So say, for instance, if Leo decided to write crime fiction. Exactly, exactly. And I know that there are people, autistic people, who are writing crime fiction. So what would I say to writers is that make sure not to have token characters. Like it's really important to have diversity. I think it's important to be aware of the cliches so that you can avoid them because I think they affect us. You know, just as we, uh, I think, can't help but be unconsciously racist, I think we can, we bring those, we can bring those unconscious assumptions and presumptions to anything. And so just to be careful of how that shows up in storytelling. So just in the same way as it can feel really normal in a story to have the girl gets rescued, you know, or the girl, the girl screams and the, yeah, the guy fights. And why is that? You know, what is that actually? Is, is that actually some kind of um, real thing or is that a sort of outdated? What is that sort of cliche about? There are cliches that pertain to like a character with a disability or a character from a non-English speaking background or, and so I think it's good to really question yourselves about your characters and make sure that they have an active, important role in the story so that you're, and I'd, I'd say that applies to any writer. You know, we all, all writers, we always have the danger of, of writing stock characters or, you know, from, from whatever point of view we're writing from. You know, since starting to produce this series, I've just been thinking about it 24-7, mm-hmm. you know, diversity, I've been thinking about everything. And, you know, looking at so much that I read and a lot of what's popular uh, on our site is commercial women's fiction, right? Mm-hmm. And you very rarely see any diversity in that. And I think it must not be possible for the women writing them or the people writing them not to have diversity in their life. Mm-hmm. You can... Right, because, you know, I don't live in a bubble, you don't live in a bubble, yeah. my friends are from all over the place. Yeah. I don't see them represented in fiction. Like if you were to write my story, I mean, it's so diverse. Mm. Um, and I think surely theirs is. And so are they writing them out? It's such an interesting, it's such an interesting question. Because like if you walk into any school in Sydney, yeah. for instance, I mean, it, they are diverse. Where are That's, those kids being, rep- why aren't they being represented? That's what I've wondered. Like, you know, the, the kids' series Dream Writers that Jesse and I have written, that has two mums. It's got a, a boy who's been adopted from Taiwan, a multiracial family. There's a boy with initial disability. But it's not like that wasn't intentional, but that is actually our world. And That's who you know. I really agree with you, Cheryl. It's, do you think that there could be a sort of caution or a fear about it? Um, well, gatekeeper on that. I'm trying to get to the bottom of this. Problem. Yeah. And, you know, it's really, really interesting am. for me because... So the book I'm writing is about, it's commercial women's fiction. It's three women who live together in, in a household in the 70s. So one, one of the mums has a son, like Leo. Yeah. So Carol, one of the main characters, has emigrated from England. I wondered about her emigrating from somewhere else because, like, my best friend is from Croatia. I just worried about, I think there was a fear there too that I wouldn't, that I wouldn't, like, I know, I know how to write that, you know, and, and, and that person from England came to me as that, mm. you know, but, but could she have? 
Yeah, no, I'm just questioning that. You know, is there a fear there about not not being allowed? Yeah, I really wonder too. So if I was to write a story, let's say even just my immediate family, right? Mm. My sister is married to a Burmese-Australian guy. We are Lebanese-Australian. My nephew has got a beautiful partner who's Vietnamese-Australian. If you go to a family lunch on a Sunday, it is really (laughs) like uh, the world is represented. Now, that's not unique. I'm sure there's not other families like mine. Well, that's what I'm writing about. My sister's, you know, her, her long-term partner is a woman. My husband's Jewish, you know. My godson's adopted from Taiwan. My yeah. other best friend, gay. Like, this is normal. Yeah. Mm. And, you know, a story in the 70s, that's a bit different. But, yeah, in contemporary fiction, do you think there could be a fear for writers with that? Or what do you think is happening? I don't know. I don't know what's happening and why that's not happening. But I tell you what, you know, in what I've learned in the past two weeks, I am going to be bringing that up. I'm going to be yeah. bringing it up with every story that's presented to us and I'm going to be talking about people, to people, to publishers. And, and I hope a lot of people listen to this and mm. start thinking about it themselves. And I'm like, why didn't I think about it earlier? I mean, I'm only just starting to think about it now in the last couple of weeks since I've been putting this together. So it's timely because the whole world is talking about it. But wow, it's so long overdue. It's so long overdue. I very much feel the silence in... Aboriginal, yeah, I, I feel that. So my books acknowledge the country that it's been written in and help. But I would be very hesitant to, I also don't want to imperialise that experience. You know, I'm, But I get that. But what about if you're like me? Because, oh, well, and you and I are similar because we were both raised mm. in Greece. Now you'll remember there was lots of Indigenous communities living. Oh, and one of my best friends in primary school, Raymond, yes. if you're listening, because he asked me out and I said no, um, and then I changed my mind. <laughs> So went, I, I went to school with, you know, it was really multicultural. It there totally were was. All sorts of people. So let's say if I, I'm writing and I'm mm. listening to this podcast, could I write about Raymond? Or he wasn't my friend, but let's say Raymond was my friend. I mean, he's my experience, isn't he? Yes, he is. I mean, I've, I really question that because I feel really confident to write. You know, I've written about, you know, all kinds of different people, but I haven't written about people from different racial backgrounds and I felt that's been out of respect but I don't want it to be silent you know I think silence and I hate that and that's that's wrong because why can't you write about Raymond you knew him he was your best friend and he was of Aboriginal descent can't he be your best friend in the book and there's not me in the book unfortunately so he actually was going to be yeah unfortunately there was actually a character there was a child character who was so that that's Mm. unfortunate but say The Clean Skin, my adult book before the, the one that's... So that's my most recently published adult book. It's an allegory of immigration. Very much I wanted it to be about the difficulties of leaving the past behind and how people get swept up into religious and other conflict back at home. Mm-hmm. I needed to write that. I wrote that based on my history of Protestant and Catholic, yeah, which was really, really vitriolic and horrific. Like my, grand, yeah, my grandmother didn't go to my mother's wedding because it was mixed. Mm. Like that wasn't that long ago. You know, I went to a Catholic school and members of my family objected. I mean, this all happened in the 80s. You know, and isn't it brilliant that that's all sort of now unimaginable? But I needed to set that in my own background and community because I felt that to set it in somebody else's would have been too kind of other. Like, wouldn't that be bad you know, and I think I've talked about things. I feel, I'm sure that, I mean, I'd really love to hear what you thought about it. Like if you would relate from, you know, from Lebanon and like what, what's going on moving countries, you know, with all those kind of things of loyalty to the politics from there. And um, I know, like co- my husband being Jewish, you know, there are just these 
but I, I couldn't write that from in a Jewish story or I kind of like, I had to write it in my story. It's a constant struggle for me, identity. Yeah. Constant. Well, that's right. Yeah. And I feel that to write, I have to start from where I am, mm. which in some ways is very elastic and very flexible, but in other ways, like I had to write that story. I felt like its value was to be set and to ask questions about this world that people take for granted, to problematize and ask questions so that when people do look, for example, at the Muslim community and say, you know, why is there so much violence and why are you having all these issues and why is there all this religious stuff? To say, no, that's actually, it can feel normal for that to be in a Christian context, you know, between Catholic and Protestant. Oh, that's just normal. Well, no, it's not. It's actually the same. These are human issues. These are universal issues. Leaving a country behind, that's not easily done. That's not, that's not a simple you don't just click your fingers and it's, that takes generations and it's very painful. But yeah. I felt like that had to be from, I mean, do you think that I could have written that? I, I, I think it would have been not only inauthentic but presumptuous to write that, for example, you know, say my husband's story. of. I do think that that, that is, yeah, you couldn't write that. But I think you could write, like I could write a story of having Vietnamese Australian people in my family because... Oh, yeah. And that's exactly so what I've done. So the next dream writer's story, Kai, is about a boy. He's 12 years old. He's from Taiwanese background. He, so he's of Asian appearance from a multiracial family. And yeah. it's from his point of view. So I've done that. And I have felt in some ways... A bit my heart's been in my boots, but then he's my godson. He's one of the people I'm closest to in the world. Yeah, and it's really important to tell the story of a boy with that multiracial background in the bush with horses, Australian as you can be, that's him. He's just like everybody who isn't First Nations, everybody who's not Aboriginal, he's as Australian as anybody else. And I really, really wanted to, yeah, I have to be able to tell that story. And it, it's funny, I didn't feel any hesitation. I just wrote it. It was easy. It was only when it came to talking about it that I suddenly thought, oh, yeah. But I felt I know him. I know him as well as any of my other characters. So it's interesting, isn't it? Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's such a good question of yours, though, like why are people leaving them out? Really? I mean, I just can't imagine that you can come out with all these stories and not have that experience in your day-to-day life. It's strange, isn't it? I want to see really more. Strange. more in I do too. We read, you know. So what's next for you? What are you doing? What are you working on? So I've just written Kai. It's really interesting. It's about the Brumbies. It's about bushfires. I didn't know any of this was happening when I was writing it and it's all sort of, yeah, come up. And it's about a boy who, like my godson, Fu, is adopted from Taiwan, living in Byron Bay, um, and that's where the stories are all set. And then the the fourth book in the series, Violet, is coming out early next year. So Kai is coming out in December. Then... My next adult book, The Women and the Girls, is coming out with Alan and Unwin early next year in January. So I'm very excited. This is, you know, because for 10 years I couldn't write because, yeah, I was with Leo. But I, at the time I was so frustrated. I was thinking, oh, I'm losing all these stories. You know, it's all, they're all passing me by. They're going to kind of go down the drain. They're all there, you know. So now I'm sort of writing like mad, catching up. Because I was, um, when he went to high school, I thought it was the end of the world. You know, I thought, um, I thought he wasn't ready I was just, it, it was really, I was terrified. He was more than ready. He, um, he did not look back. Bye, yeah. <laughs> <My> mum. See ya. <laughs> Guess who later. wasn't ready? <laughs> so now I have lots of time. Yeah, now, now I'm writing. <laughs> Laura, it's been such a pleasure um, speaking with you. And now that you've got all these books coming up, I'm sure our paths will cross again very soon. I really hope they do, Cheryl. I've loved talking to you. Bye. <laughs> 
If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere, or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBookstore. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.